0: Welcome to America's Commercial Real Estate Show, your source for intel, forecasts, and success strategies. Hello, I'm Michael Ball. Thank you for being with us. This segment is brought to you by Bomi.org. That's B-O-M-I. They are the leader in education for facilities and property management. Check them out at Bomi.org. Well, we have an incredible show for you today. Those of you who have watched and listened to the show for many years know that every year we cover emerging trends in real estate. Now, this is a great report. I look forward to Every year, and it's put out by ULI and PwC, and uh, it's it's a pretty incredible, it's pretty respected. We're going to hit some of the highlights of it, some of the trends that we're seeing, what to expect moving forward, and in the last segment, stay with us. We're going to talk about some really some top markets to watch moving forward. Please welcome my guests. I have Mitch Rochelle and Byron Carlock here with us in Studio One. Now they are partners with PwC, and they lead the real estate world. Gentlemen, thanks. For being with us, thanks, Michael. Thank you, Michael. Boy, Good we to appreciate see you again. it. And, and most of our audience knows, but briefly, why is emerging trends in real estate done, and how is it done? Uh,
1: so. Basically, the membership of ULI that we've been partnering with for about 15 or so years on the publication gets a survey uh, in the late summer, uh, mid to late summer, and 1,400, I'm sorry, 2,400 people respond to the survey or are subject to a one-on-one interview with Byron. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But the the 2,400 is the high watermark. We've never had so many responses. Uh, This year actually happens to be the 40th anniversary of emerging trends, and maybe in a bit we can talk about things. Things that we've learned in 40 years, but uh, it's an incredibly, and we appreciate you having us on every year, it's an incredibly durable publication that is so widely read um, that we're really honored to be a part of it.
0: Well I guess after 40 years um, you're starting to learn some things that kind of about history and I think a lot of people are concerned about hey where are we moving forward and have we learned from our past transgressions
2: you know over building. And sure that? well it's interesting I think this cycle is in fact different many times real estate folks say that every time but you really look at how long this recovery has been as we're going into the 11th year now. And it's uh, pretty exciting to see that the industry is in pretty good shape, uh, has resiliently recovered from the global financial crisis. And it doesn't look like this is going to be stopping anytime soon. Are, yeah. are, right, Mitch? Yeah, and what's interesting, if you go back 40 years,
1: just let's think about the size and scale of the real estate industry today relative to where it came from. Uh, so if you back back in 1978, when emerging trends in real estate was first being incubated, and maybe I'll step back and give you a little per- perspective on it. Equitable Life Insurance Company created emerging trends in real estate because they were a leading. Um, open-ended core fund manager and a separate account manager. And at the time, what they wanted to do was get feedback from their client base and from real estate market participants on where they thought the market was headed so that they can use that in their calculus for how they would invest going forward. And it's grown. Uh, The marketplace at the time for, this is all commercial real estate, was $243 billion back then. So, that's the overall size. There's a lot of different ways to look at it, but less than $250 billion then. Fast forward to today, $6.2 trillion. So That's the size of the commercial real estate uh, universe. What's really interesting, when we asked the participants what has changed, and if you go through the list of things that they talked about that are new, none of them were really that new, although the big takeaway uh, for us was the advent of REITs. So the real estate investment trust actually existed prior to 1978. It was a creature of the Internal Revenue Code from before that. But publicly traded REITs weren't that prolific. So if you wanted to invest in commercial real estate and you were not an institutional real estate investor, you didn't really have an opportunity to do so. There were syndicators that uh, were really small in scale relative to the overall almost $250 billion. And that was your only pathway. Fast forward to today. Real estate, commercial real estate investment has been totally democratized. Anybody around the world can invest in uh, a commercial institutional asset side by side with the big fellas, right? And that is the most amazing thing. Uh, And it's a respected and important piece of the asset allocation wheel Mm -hmm. for investors. Yeah, and what's interesting, I talked about life companies. Um, At the time, the chief investment officer of the life company would have said, Uh, Our allocation to alternative assets is X. Our allocation to real estate is Y, which was a subset of X. And investing in commercial real estate wasn't an opportunity, it was an obligation we're required to invest X amount of capital in real estate in dollars or in percentage. Fast forward to today, it's a go-to strategy for investors around the planet. Yeah. Um, and the ability to access that kind of capital and the ability to get in um, to a trophy asset is really the thing that has totally changed in 40 years. Um, jokingly, we, we've said that the asset class has been legitimized over 40 years and what's going to pave it forward, maybe we can put the sound in behind this, is it's now too legit to quit. <laughs> <laughs> too legit to quit. But it, that, that's the thing that's really happened to us that was the aha moment. Some people said securitization, something that's happened in the last 40 years, and that's new. But if you think about it, CMBS, Commercial Mortgage Backed Securities, is really taking a mortgage and slicing it this way and letting investors invest in different parts of the stack, okay? What happened before that was commercial real estate loans got syndicated across different banks. So that's taking a loan and slicing it that way. So I'm sorry, slicing it that way or slicing it that way, that's not really innovation. But letting people from around the planet invest in a trophy mall, a trophy office building um, as a retail investor in increments of one share. To me, that's really the game changer. And I'm not trying to do a commercial for REITs, but I really think that that... And then the derivatives of REITs, having mutual funds that invest in REITs, having exchange-traded funds that uh, invest in REITs, that has really poured a tremendous amount of capital in, that has sustained
2: real estate in good times and bad. At the same time, we're watching the uh, structure of fund, the fund business changes as well. Right. And the growth of funds across different themes, different holding periods, and now big growth in the open-ended funds. So I think the the big point, as you mentioned, is not only the democratization of real estate, but the acceptance of real estate as an important asset in anyone's portfolio. And percentages allocated to alternatives, which is mostly real estate and private equity, a little bit of hedge, ETFs, is Uh, growing. And it's growing across the institutional complex as well as the continued growth of the reed industry. And then sovereign wealth funds now have real estate dialed into a, a percentage of their investment activity.
0: Yeah. And it's part of the comfort level that's legitimized commercial real estate as an asset class around the world as part of it. Transparency, uh, more information, you look at emerging trends. If you get a chance read it, we'll have a link to the actual report and we're going to talk about some of the highlights and trends from it but as part of that legitimacy that, that there is more transparency, there is more information, there's uh, a show like this that you can kind of get a better understanding? It's really all because of the commercial real estate show. I mean, <laughs> you've been around
1: for eight years yeah. of that 40 and if you just look at the chart of yeah. where commercial real estate's gone in the last eight yeah, years. Meteoric. meteoric. Right. So I'd right. have to think it has a lot to do with the yeah, we
0: turned eight uh, tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> as we're taping this today, yeah. so we are officially eight years old. well, well so. this is what my, when this it airs recovery. You will be uh, eight. You, you'll be in your ninth
1: year. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, I, and, and all kidding aside, it's really always been a thrill to be to be part of that. i, I and no joke. I think that the amount of information that exists in commercial real estate today, mm-hmm. uh, the brokerage community, and the amount of information that they have. Um, all of the data services that exist today. What's interesting in putting the, uh, the slides together, some of which will be you know, part of this video um, mm. podcast or the YouTube podcast, whatever you call it, Michael. But anyway, um, and Andy Warren is not here because uh, he's back in the R&D lab cranking out more slides, but Andy's been on with us in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the data doesn't even exist going back 40 years. There's actually a dearth of data. So yeah. data has a lot to do with it. I also want to go back to REITs, because, because they're publicly traded entities and they have a responsibility uh, pursuant to the SEC rules to provide transparency, that's important. The advent of rating agencies and securitization created an additional layer of information that's out there. So I think information is key to that. And that's not necessarily because of technological advancements. That's just because of the demands of the marketplace. Private equity has also grown, Byron referenced that. And if you look at private equity, there are ways for accredited investors who aren't institutional investors to invest side by side in some feeder funds with the big private equity players. And the amount of information that they share with investors is pretty um, amazing as well. So I think uh, you you nailed it with the question. I Mm -hmm. I think that information transparency is a big part of the uh, legitimacy of the asset class today.
0: Yeah, and you think about commercial real estate or real estate in general, um, you want to skate where the puck is going. And I think that's why a report like this is so important and a show like this to kind of you want to know, hey, what is impacting real estate, the economy? What are the trends so you can make decisions moving forward? And quickly before we end this segment, if you if you looked at the overall report, and you said, hey, what's the theme this year? It's different, what did you get
1: out of it? Um, I think we're gonna tackle that in other segments. That was (laughs) a hell of a tease, right? (laughs) (laughs) The one thing I'll tell you about skating where the puck was going, and this is a true story, several years ago when we started uh, hyping in the report, industrial as a place to invest, and industrial, spoiler alert, is still a hot uh, subsector, somebody who said to me, who's a big player said, will you stop talking about industrial?" And this is why? He goes, we want to buy it. And if you put it in a report, everybody's going to want to buy it. And I said, we interviewed like 1,400 people and like 900 of them made industrial top. You're not alone. It's a yeah. crowded trade. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but you, definitely, we we try to talk about things before they happen. And when we unpack some of the trends to follow, mm-hmm. I think that's what we're going to be doing. Yeah.
0: And I like it. So not only do you look at the market reports to see kind of what's been going on, but you do these interviews and, and the, the, they interview people from from all walks of life, if you will. Including you. Yeah, I was interviewed, uh, and uh, so it might be skewed uh, (laughs) as a broker in there. Uh, But uh, yeah, so, well, well, stay with us. We're gonna talk about some of the trends that they picked up in emerging trends this year. Stay with us. I'm Michael Bull. This is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. Would you like access to invest in institutional quality commercial real estate with experienced sponsors with small amounts of money? Of course you would. Visit realcrowd.com. Choose between core, core plus, value add, or opportunistic. Visit realcrowd.com.
1: Would you like to be the top producing commercial broker in your office? Check out Michael Bull's video training. Since you're a show listener, you receive 10% off your first purchase. At checkout, use discount code CREshow. Visit commercialagentsuccess.com.
0: Thank you. Welcome back to America's Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Ball. The excitement is brought to you by realcrowd.com. It is crowdfunding with the professionals. Check them out at realcrowd.com. Well, today we're talking about emerging trends in real estate. It's the ULI PwC, a report that comes out each year. Our guests are Mitch Rochelle and Byron Carlock, and they're with PwC. They lead the real estate world there and their partners. And, and gentlemen, we talked about kind of the overall view. And I think one of the things that people are curious about is you know, what are the expectations moving forward? How long is commercial real estate and real estate going to be profitable? And you do
2: the report, you talk to a lot of people, what's the sentiment? Yeah, do you, do you want to take no, that? No, well, I just I think the big yeah. news is we don't see a big correction or crash coming anytime soon and the next one will not be real estate's fault. Good. The, <laughs> the sentiment's pretty high and you'll see in the graph just yeah. how it's continuing, but it's not that abnormal. Yeah, mm-hmm. and what, what's interesting
1: is if you We ask the market participants in our survey every year, what are the prospects for profitability for the upcoming year? We don't define the word prospect. We don't define the word profitability Mm -hmm. and we let them. And it's a one to five scale. One is abysmal and five is excellent. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we've seen is that it's sort of plateaued where people are feeling strong about it, which is the good. People saying good, which is four and five, which is excellent. And two years ago, I got really nervous because the sentiment in 2007 looked identical to the sentiment in 2017. I was like, well, we all know it happened in 2008, but we've gotten, we've gotten past that, and we'll talk more about where we are in this recovery. Um, one of the things we have observed is the folks that were saying good uh, were growing in number and the folks that were saying excellent were kind of shrinking in number. So maybe we thought people were starting to back off a little bit, but that's leveled out. And and uh, to Byron's point, uh, people feel that maybe this is one of those recoveries that's just going to go a lot longer uh, than others. One of the things we also looked at is past recoveries and where, what was going on in those past recoveries. So if you go back like to the Lincoln administration, you'll notice that economic booms and busts were frequent and short. Uh, If you get into the modern era, into like the 70s, you notice that economic um, booms and busts were longer, but not as long as the recovery is today. But one of the things you experienced in those recoveries was GDP growth and uh, employment growth at a greater level. You get into the recovery that we're currently in. Now, GDP has uh, jumped up dramatically in the past year, maybe year and a half relative to where it had been in the past. But job growth had been relatively small. And that's when we first started to see a jobless recovery. So one of the things we had observed was it's possible that real estate participants were actually enjoying the fact that the economy was growing, but growing very slowly, so that they didn't get ahead of themselves.
2: And, and um, so, and, and here we are with a relatively healthy supply demand across all the major product categories, and in an environment that is continuing to elongate, and frankly looks like it will elongate more because the capital markets have been disciplined. There's not been overbuilding in... Yeah, any demonstrable sectors were still under housed. Mm-hmm. Twenty nine million millennials still live at home, and when you when you benchmark it against other economies, I thing my kids aren't millennials. They're yes, Gen it? Z. You just
1: <laughs> you just scared me for a second. <laughs> <laughs>
2: And if you look at this in context of other countries, we've yeah. got a great chart that yeah. will show. Um, yeah, I think this is
0: interesting because what is this—the second longest recovery uh, cycle we've had in the U.S., right?
1: Yeah, this but, is the second longest. We're, we're about to surpass uh, the longest. The, the we're as we air this, we're at 112 months. The longest um, is 122 months. Mm-hmm. Uh, which seems long and people are starting to get nervous that we're bumping up against the that deadline, if you will, and people are starting to say a lot of, we're late in the recovery, uh, which is possible. But let's put this into some global perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, since 1991, Australia's been recovering. Uh, they're now in month 324. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's But it's with, still with positive
2: GDP growth across that whole time.
1: 3.2% yeah. GDP growth over that time right. period. South Korea, 4.4% GDP growth, 240 months. We talked before the, the show started, and uh, we were sort of commenting on what could be the thing that derails a recovery. Let's just think about South Korea for a second. Think about uh, Canada, our neighbor to the north, firing rockets over our heads if that wouldn't slow down our economy if it happened, but that's what North Korea and South Korea had been doing uh, up until recently, and that didn't slow down their 4.4% GDP growth. Ireland, I'll leave you with this one, which Ireland people think of as a boom bust kind of thing, because Ireland did have some massive expansion but they have continued to expand. There are 234 months with a 5.9% average GDP growth over that time period. So um, it's possible that the slowness of our recovery is the thing that's going to yeah.
2: catapult yeah. and, and And think about it. we're we're continuing this with increasing interest rates. Mm-hmm. We are watching, as Mitch pointed out. The sentiment has shifted. There, there are more that have said good and fair, and the, so there's, it's not a euph- it's not a euphoric sentiment, but it's a optimistic sentiment. Only one percent, less than one percent, think it's going to be a bad year in 2019. Yeah,
1: right? I always joke. People, I, I used to when I would put that chart up uh, when I'd speak around the country, I would refer to the person who said abysmal as one bitter dude. (laughs) A couple of years ago, I looked into it, and apparently it was 17 bitter people. 17 bitter people. 17 bitter people. um, And uh, they were uh, 16 men, one woman. We did know that. Uh, Last year, it went down to uh, 16 bitter people. And I'm really thrilled to announce that now we're down to 15 bitter people. Uh, I can't tell you who they are, or I can't tell you whether or not yeah. they're the same bitter people. I, I wasn't one of the. You know, I I think no. it's actually yeah. uh, people yeah. who just clicked the wrong box on a survey. <laughs> yeah. When 2,400 people respond, there's yeah. always going to be a couple of errors. Yeah. Uh, but no, I the, I think the the sentiment is uh, and the the economics of our economy that was redundant. Uh, is really what's driving us forward. And Byron, used an important word before it, and I want to bring it back, which is discipline, which is the lenders, the investors, and Michael, to the point you made in the previous segment, when you have the degree of transparency and accountability that we have today, and when you have folks that are in roles where they're acting as a fiduciary over the money that's uh, being invested, you get behavior that's very responsible And that's why we have uh, the market we have today.
2: And interestingly, as you say that, it reminds me that the industry has also matured to offer each capital pool a product that suits their own needs. When you say commercial real estate, you now get to choose between, do you want a debt strategy and equity strategy, a public strategy, a private strategy, opportunistic, hoping for big returns down to value add, then uh, core plus, and then core as well as product decisions across office, industrial, retail, multifamily, hospitality, self-storage, data centers, and, and each of those is evolving in the type of product that's relevant to tenant demand today, and investors can choose the buckets that they want for the return he they're willing to. left off cannabis. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that might go up in speed yeah,
1: that's just, right? uh, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, we're not going to eat that one. But... <laughs> in, in any event, what's interesting is listening to you, Byron, you discussed investment strategies, you did not classify the type of investor, and every word that came out of your mouth, all of which were correct, could be applied to the most seasoned institutional investor, foreign or domestic, or a retail investor. Or a retail investor. Who can access those products and those strategies through REITs, through ETFs, through a whole bunch of different channels. Which 20, even 25 years ago was not available to Right, and, and, yeah. and you mentioned crowdfunding, or at least we were talking about it during the, um, during the break, in fact, crowdfunding, which which hasn't really taken off, you know, as big as its potential, but I think it's making great progress. Crowdfunding is another way to play on the debt side of that. Crowdfunding allows you to democratize investing in debt, yeah. um, and it will have the degree of transparency and accountability. So there's no there's no end to um, where this heads, and I'm
0: encouraged by what about like. the economy? Yeah. Um, you know, Holland's going to be great. You know, wh- what are some things that could derail us? What should we expect moving forward? There, it, what's really
1: interesting, we were trying to understand uh, where GDP growth is and where it's come from, and what are the components of GDP growth. And when we looked at the past boom, the 2001 to 2008 recovery. So much of that was driven by housing, or at least the presumption that housing was important. If you go back 40 years and you look at the the role that new housing construction has played to driving GDP growth, it's relatively small. Mm -hmm. And the thing that's fascinating if you look over time is, and we're going to talk about employment probably in the next segment, but if you just look at just the, the underlying economy, how important the consumer has been to the economy over that 40-year period, that really speaks to the durability of our recovery and the real estate asset class being in a position where it supports the consumer. So it's not just retail, which we'll talk about some more, Um, it's office, um, it's multifamily, All of those play into the consumer, that's two-thirds. Logistics and supply chain. All of that. And so as our economy evolves and as the nature of what we do in our economy evolves, the fact of the matter is the consumer is the constant across all of that and will continue to contribute to the growth of our economy. Well,
2: And to that point, the the consumer is changing the way they use space, Mm -hmm. which is only elongating this cycle as developers and investors respond to those changing tastes. So how long can I do the Snoopy dance uh, <laughs> about a great economy? So I'll just
1: say one thing, because I'm not going to answer that question for fear that somebody brings it up and beats me over the head with an answer <laughs> that is on videotape. Yeah. But uh, the fact of the matter is, you've been using the expression Snoopy dance, Michael, for as long as I've known you. And mm-hmm. I've never seen you do the Snoopy dance. So no, I one, just did it. Yeah, No, no, no. We want, <laughs> I know you're tethered to the chair with wires, but at some point. Uh, Chase, we right. need to get that. Get him on videotape doing yeah. that. Like maybe like a little emoji that just sails around you, like on <laughs> in your Instagram story of Michael doing the stupid. Look, thing we about. know
2: there are plenty of things that could go wrong. Mm-hmm. Geopolitical issues, plenty of things that could temper the growth. We, what we're saying is we don't see anything that's co- that's predicting an imminent crash. And the sentiment index proves that the sentiments are generally optimistic. Okay.
0: So nothing with midterms, nothing with an election two years from now, uh, nothing uh, like that could impact it, you think?
1: I think it's very hard to predict what the thing is that's going to drive the economy. That black, one, that yeah.
2: black swan that we all want to predict.
1: Yeah. yeah. And what's interesting is it, I spent a lot of time looking at the 2001 crash of the economy, or at least what caused a couple of consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. There's two ways of looking at it. It could have been the events of 9-11 as, as the ultimate black swan event. It mm-hmm. could have also been the dot-com bubble, mm-hmm. right? So asset bubbles are something that concerns um, economists, and I was speaking to a, a Harvard uh, uh, a professor economist yesterday. Uh, but. You can look at asset prices, whether they be real estate asset prices or stock and bond asset prices, and look at them and say, boy, they're really bubbly relative to long-term trends. But if you look at the long-term trends over a 40-year horizon, and you look at that growth potential that exists going forward, uh, maybe the answer is they're reasonably priced. Uh, And by the way, they're reasonably priced because willing buyers and willing sellers are trading at that level.
2: Right. And capital continues to flow. Right. So apparently, I can do the
0: Snoopy dance into 2019, according to the report. Yes. Indeed. And, you know, we don't have the report for 2020 yet. Right? No, we don't have it yet. No, no,
1: no. You'll be the first to get it,
0: Michael. <laughs> right. All right. Well, you know, commercial real estate uh, also depends on the sector, right, and on some of the markets. So stay, stay tuned with us. We're going to talk about some of the trends that are impacting uh, the market and expected to impact it moving forward and talk about some hot markets. Stay with us. I'm Michael Bull. This is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. Are you looking for proven property management and facilities management education? Visit BOMI.org. That's B-O-M-I, Building Owners and Managers Institute International. They are the trusted source for education in the property and facilities industry. Visit BOMI.org. Welcome back to America's Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Ball. This segment is brought to you by CommercialAgentSuccess.com. It is the ultimate video training for commercial brokers? I know because I created it. Visit visit commercialagentsuccess.com. And and my guests, you just heard them, Mitch Rochelle (laughs) and Byron Carly. They're partners with PwC. And we're talking about emerging trends in real estate. And we're going to hit on on some of those trends. And trend number one was intensifying transformation. What do you mean?
1: We've gone in our country from a service a manufacturing economy to a service economy and we're under this um delusion that this is something that happened recently i mentioned uh before that this is the 40th anniversary of emerging trends if you look at that trend uh it's clearly continued in the last 40 years but it actually started after world war um or before excuse me before world war ii so this is not something new and our economy has continued to evolve to one that's not only in the service sector, but globally leading in in the service sector. So the nature of the real estate that we have, uh, the built environment, if you will, that has transformed itself because of our uh, dependence on services to drive our economy, as opposed to manufacturing to drive our economy, it's intensifying because that's happening more. So as our economy begins to grow, and whether you deem where we are right now is sugar high or not, but there's no question <laughs> our economy is growing and, and picking up steam, that steam is going to be picked up Um, In the The service service sector as well. And sugar
0: high, you're referring to jokingly the economy, not real estate, right? No, we're (laughs) talking about the U.S.
1: economy and the fact (laughs) that that some believe some economists believe that by creating the tax incentives that were created at the end of uh, calendar uh, 2017, we've pulled forward economic growth that would have happened more slowly over the years to follow and that's creating a sugar high in the economy.
0: And that's uh, kind of good transition into number two of the trends easing into the future.
1: Yeah. So what's going on there, and, and Byron can elaborate um, as well, is if you look at our demographics, OK, we are in the United States getting older as a country. Uh, and there'll be a good graph uh, behind me someplace and post Chase will put that up there. Um, But uh, the birth rate in the United States is slower than, unfortunately, the death rate. So the natural change in age is, is, is happening. But if you compare us as a country to the rest of the world, whether you look at uh, Japan, which is largely viewed as being an aging population, China, which um, everybody thought was a younger population, because also aging, also aging, and then the euro, not the EU, but just the eurozone in total, we're younger and we're not aging as fast as those. So part of the drag on the economy is funding the benefits for an aging population. So while that, there may need be need for t- entitlement reform in our country. The fact of the matter is aging isn't as much of a drag on our economy uh, as uh, it may be in other countries around the world. And Byron, you travel the globe way more than I do, so.
2: No, no, I think, I think that's a huge concern, especially in Japan right now and in, in Italy and in, in Europe. Uh, very, very worried about declining birth rates. But it's also, for the real estate industry, these demographic changes are, <laughs> once again, changing the way we use space and what types of space we need. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's also contributing to elongating the recovery because developers are adapting to those changing preferences through through the way you know old warehouses are being converted to residential B and C malls are being redeveloped uh, we're seeing um, you know continued growth in college housing in assisted living and a product appropriate for the aging population and so there's there is um, there are positive ramifications for our industry because of these demographic changes as well. Yeah, and then you have retail being used for office. It's uh, it's Everything's upside down. Yeah, <laughs>
0: and
1: we're we'll going to talk about that in a little bit when we get to retail, but yeah. here's the thing to remember. The uses of land are reflective of the demands for the use of the mm-hmm. land. And one of the things we try to do in Emerging Trends is predict what that demand is going to be. And, and I think we've been right year after year. I'm going to talk later about something we got really wrong. Mm-hmm. But the fact of the matter is, what's happening? Aging population, uh, a growth spurt with the millennials, a growth spurt with um, with the Gen Z, not as, as much as we'd like uh, to sort of balance our population. but all of them have healthcare needs so what's the biggest alternative use for retail space urgent care. Yeah. There's been an explosion of urgent care.
2: Well, in fact, health and wellness uses have been the bulk of new leases signed in the retail space.
1: No question about it. And we're going to talk about amenities gone wild in, in the next segment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't want to jump ahead with health and wellness. But the fact of the matter is, um, just as real estate has been become democratized, the healthcare industry has somewhat become democratized, and they're taking the hospital to the patient.
0: Yeah. And I think the the America is getting healthier as well. We're working longer, right? And right. that's having an impact. Well, and we're, we're, we're living longer, yeah. right? So the, yeah. the fact of the matter is um, your
1: health needs, um, it's, a, it's a virtuous cycle, the health needs and uh, the life expectancy going up.
0: Yeah. I had uh, some eye surgery not long ago, and the doctor said, now you can resume your normal activities. And I looked at her and I thought, well, all right, uh, for my age or for my normal activities, <laughs> you know, my, my <laughs> hazard to think what your normal activities were. Well, it might involve fast boat or fast off-road stuff. So, you know, what might it, involve it, but but fast food. Fast food. <laughs> but it's you know, the the point is, you know, it, we're we're not the 50s uh, year olds that we were. 50 years ago, right? People are living longer, they're more active, they need more healthcare. Well, let's look at another thing that, especially when you look back 50 years, has has been changing. Uh, Number three on the trend, suburbs 3.0.
1: Yeah, what's fascinating is we, the 18 hour city uh, expression is something that we coined. Emerging trends arguably coined 24 hour city a while back. Uh, A lot of people can take credit for 24 hour city. But we take pride in coining the phrase "18-hour city," and uh, there's no copyright there, so <laughs> others can use it uh, with uh, with complete immunity. But as those 18-hour cities—the the Nashvilles, the Austin, Texas, the Memphis where Byron's heading to—those cities, uh, Raleigh, Durham, by the way. It's Raleigh and Durham. Don't send me hate mail people, because I was speaking down there, and I referred to them as Raleigh-Durham, and like they did not dig that. So it's like <laughs> Dallas-Fort Worth is still DFW, but I'm telling you, Raleigh-Durham, those people get angry when you lump them two together. It's like New York and New Jersey, they like to be separate. But in, in any event, those cities that are becoming very popular f- with uh, residents young and old, uh, the younger residents college grads and that stay, they tend to be very sticky, too, in terms of people finding jobs and staying, more employers coming in that, in that virtuous cycle. They start to want to move to the suburbs. They're not moving back to the suburbs that they may have grown up in in a bigger city. They're actually staying there. So, we're creating suburban-like fields pretty close to the city or the actual suburbs of those cities. So, there's a suburbanication i got to figure out and to say that better, uh, that's taking place not just in the big cities, the 24-hour cities, but also in the, the these 18-hour cities as well.
2: And if infrastructure expenditures begin as we expect, you'll see a lot of those dollars going in to improve transportation to move people in and out of the suburbs so that it expands the footprint of uh, mobilization. So you do expect infrastructure spending
0: to jump? Well, it well, seems like it's kind the, of... So dragged. after
2: tax reform, infrastructure was going to be a big yeah. push. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not happened yet. That's yeah. still the expectation. There is a lot of discussion uh, regionally in transportation improvements, mm-hmm. public-private partnerships. Uh, LaGuardia is being redeveloped now after a 14-year wait to get the right people public-private partnership deal done, JFK is going to happen next year. And so you begin to see the importance of, and certainly the need for infrastructure spending. But historically, when infrastructure spending happens, it's good for the real estate industry. And I think that's another driver to elongate this cycle.
1: What's also happening is my Street in Armonk, New York, is getting repaved. So there's sign wow. that infrastructure dollars
2: <laughs> are I, being spent.
1: I had a pothole. For those of you who follow me on Twitter, and if you don't, was that the camera? It's Mitch <laughs> underscore Rochelle, and put it in the lower third if you could, Chase. But uh, I actually put my uh, almost hundred pound golden retriever inside the pothole just to illustrate <laughs> over the weekend on Twitter how big that pothole is. But it's getting fixed. So there is some of that infrastructure, infrastructure makes is a difference. Happening. Yes. That's
0: good. So if the suburbs are not dead, if if there is some growth there. Is there a property type or sector that, that might be good to think about there uh, that benefits we, from it? Uh, we can tackle it now um, and, and maybe
1: look at uh, Brooklyn, which I'll talk about later as mm-hmm. an example, as um, it's a 24 hour city by any measure, um, just across the river from Manhattan, which mm-hmm. may be the ultimate 24 hour city. But if you look at Austin, um, it's all about last mile delivery. So you're going to look at uh, industrial. You're going to look at retail to fit the needs of that gr- the number of rooftops that may be growing in the suburbs. Uh, and don't rule out uh, suburban office. Uh, talk about something that's probably been uh, ignored and poked fun at when you look at all the different real estate food groups. But we're seeing more and more interest and appetite in the research that we're doing around suburban office. Partly because of that healthcare trend and suburban office often has a use of medical office within the suburban office. Mm-hmm. But people don't like commuting.
2: Well, the demands for a live, work, walk environment yeah. are, are, are only going to bring back some of those office elements in the suburbs. Yeah. yeah I'm glad to hear that because I like to sell offices, suburban offices.
0: Okay. So that's good. You well, like buyers and you like sellers. There you go.
2: But yeah. Remember everybody. that the neighborhoods that will succeed in that regard will be more animated than your yeah. bedroom community suburbs. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, stay with us. We're going to have to take a short break,
0: but we're going to talk about some trends when we get back. And we're going to start with amenities gone wild. You don't want to miss it. I'm Michael Bull. This is America's commercial real estate show. We'll be right back. Welcome back to America's Commercial Real Estate Show. I am Michael Ball, and we are talking about emerging trends in real estate today. And this segment is brought to you by Bull Realty for asset and occupancy solutions visit bullrealty.com or just give me a call cuz I'm Mr. Bull. <laughs> <laughs> and we're talking about emerging trends in real estate. This is a great report, comes out every year, and we have Mitch Rochelle here and Brian Carlock and they lead the real estate world at PwC and we're talking about the trends and we're now at number 4 amenities gone wild. Amenities is gone that, wild. Is that, is that okay for television or radio?
1: I I think so. No, the, <laughs> the word amenities proceeds gone wild, I okay. think you're, you're okay. okay, but here's a little uh, statistic for you. Eighty-one uh, percent of employers feel that amenities are amongst the top three things that they need to offer their employees to attract them. Um, we're in a uh, tight labor market. Uh, in many cases, there are more job openings than there are people um, available for those jobs. So if you have a competition for talent and skilled labor, how do you attract them? And amenities is one of the ways to attract them. Here are three, four items that are on the top of the list of amenities. Um, um, The number one uh, item is full service cafeteria. Uh, number two is showers. Wow. Um, number three is fitness facilities. I'm assuming that fitness facilities has something to do with the showers and not the full-service cafeteria, although I've seen Byron eat barbecue. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and lastly is custom coffee. So you have food and fitness being the themes. After that, you fall into green space and other uh, childcare and other items that are equally important from an amenity perspective, but don't have the degree of popularity as those first four items. Um, the question really is, what's the cost of those amenities? Whether we're adding them to tenant space, uh, landlords are adding them to attract tenants. Uh, landlords, uh, and I just didn't, I didn't differentiate between office or uh, multifamily because it, it could be either. Um, is it something that can be passed on to a tenant uh, in cost? All of that needs to, to be figured out, but and,
2: and some of the enlightened employers don't care right. because they know that it's important to their talent recruiting and retention strategy. And the, those you see, you know, not only having the full service cafeteria, healthcare on site, childcare on site or nearby, yoga classes, spin classes, you know, treadmill, conference rooms, <laughs> um, and, and so the the amenities. Serenity be- rooms. Serenity rooms. Billiard rooms. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's
1: <laughs> yes. it's your office. That's your kind of <laughs> serenity.
2: <laughs> but it's it's interesting because it is becoming the intersection between space and real estate decisions and HR decisions mm-hmm. complemented with technology, which yeah. allows more mobility. And mobility is another amenity, if you will. It may not be listed like a uh, workout facility, but THE ABILITY TO WORK FROM HOME A DAY OR TWO A WEEK IS A HUGE AMENITY IN THE LIVES OF EMPLOYERS AND MOBILITY STRATEGY REQUIRES GREATER TECHNOLOGY CONNECTEDNESS. SO THIS WHOLE EMPLOYMENT MEETS REAL ESTATE MEETS TECHNOLOGY IS THE TRIANGLE THAT WE SPEND A LOT OF TIME THINKING ABOUT THE WORKFORCE OF THE FUTURE.
0: YEAH, I THINK IT'S A
2: REAL BIG TREND. And WELL, LET'S GO TO NUMBER FIVE, PIVOTING TOWARD A
0: NEW HORIZON and uh does this have to do with retail or what
1: it does uh mm-hmm. and he- so here's an interesting nugget i, I referenced i think two uh, segments ago mm-hmm. that we're proud of things we get right with emerging trends mm-hmm. well here's one we're not so proud at and by the way we just ask the questions and we report the results talk mm-hmm. about transparency back in 2004 uh the question was um how has increased technology used impacted demand for real estate and 70 percent of the folks said that retail would not be impacted by technology. <laughs> mm-hmm. Talk about heads in the sand. Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> um, and it's changed quickly. And,
1: and it's changed quickly. So it's really the pace of change, too, that, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when you look at retail, um, the thing we've focused on pretty heavily is last mile. Yeah. Uh, and one of the other trends that we have is the, the myth of free delivery. Well, here's a fascinating little nugget for you. Um, it's almost three dollars in cost in uh, in delivering uh, something in online commerce. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that's what they charge, but those are the input costs between labor and fuel and vehicle costs and the like. Two 2- two ninety for free delivery. The average online purchase amount is eighty two dollars, and I think that that number is skewed because when I think about my typical online purchase and I can go through my account and just do a simple average and I'm buying new phone chargers like daily, okay, and that's (laughs) a relatively low ticket item. But a lot of people do buy computers and phones online, so that's driving up that, um, and televisions, that's driving up that number. But even if you stick with the 82 being a representative um, number, that delivery cost is 3.5%. And if you think about what the margin is in e-commerce and how tight that is, that's a big burden. So the fact of the matter is, free delivery is a thing, and that's something that people uh, absolutely positively uh, are motivated by, but it's not sustainable.
0: What's it mean for real estate?
1: What it means for real estate is last mile. So uh, we, we at, at PwC, we actually did a survey and we asked of all of the different delivery choices from, you know, one to two hours, to three hours, to same day, to next day, to like, you know, you bought it in another country and it takes forever and it has weird stamps on it when it finally arrives. Uh, What are people willing to pay for? The thing that people were willing to pay the most for, was same day delivery. So same day delivery puts a massive emphasis on, and willing to pay for. So I already said that the input costs for delivery are 290 on average for all delivery, but people are willing to pay for same day. So if that's something they're willing to pay for, you bet betcha that e-commerce players are going to be delivering something that they know that they can recover the cost for. So what does same day require? We don't have the infrastructure in place for same day delivery, we really don't. And that's delivery, that's not same day it's in a locker, go pick it up uh, in the shopping center. That's actually same day delivery. And so there's technological advancements that are being explored with, whether they be drones and the like, but the fact of the matter is from a real estate infrastructure perspective, we need warehousing, uh, we need space, uh, and all of those are things that, that really we're not ready for uh right now in terms of infrastructure, so from an investing perspective, I think that that's a strong place uh, to invest in right now,
0: yeah, I agree with that, and uh we'll s- I'll continue to see more change in use too. think of uh, a dead mall, for example, you know if the city if the uh, municipality will allow it, that could be a great distribution for a last mile and, and it has most uh, of yeah. the
1: infrastructure. The problem is you know. Bay Heights and ingress and egress and all of the modern standards that we we want. But you know what? I go back to the three rules of real estate, which are location, location, location. And in many cases,
2: those dead malls are in the right location. Good location, real estate that's become less relevant. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, let's talk about number six, um, artificial intelligent, get smart, is that from the old TV show? Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: I was trying to get that music, uh, I'm going to pull off my shoe and, and talk into it. Dun dun dun. dun. You, you had there it, you Byron, had, uh, yeah. Yeah, Byron had that one. Um, yeah. So look at it this way, uh, we've tried to figure out how real estate might be disrupted and, and we talked sitting in this very seat a couple of years ago about disruption in real estate. I think what we didn't really understand was how real estate would be disrupted. Uh, If you look at an industry that's been disrupted, it means the industry's gone. The yellow cab industry isn't what it used to be because of rideshare, and that's disruption. Um, But what we didn't realize is that space use is going to be disrupted. So real estate's been disrupted by disruptors. What do I mean by that? Uh, Your office buildings can't accommodate the volume of packages that they receive. Uh, from people buying stuff while sitting at their desk, and even if it's same day, boom, it shows up in the office, so you don't really have the space for it. Um, You don't have to, you take a a busy city, it could be an 18-hour city, it could be a 24-hour city. Uh, Byron and I flew in today into Hartsfield, and we had to walk like five miles to where the rideshare pickup was. It's not but, really far. You know, okay, it's like, okay, it's four, a good four and a half miles. <laughs> but the, the fact of the matter is that office buildings have to accommodate that. They may mm-hmm. have a relatively small drive up, but well, how do you accommodate 25 rideshare cars that all show up at the same time? Yeah. Not to mention the fact that if they're backing up, they're now backing up a municipal street. Uh, in California, they, they, the, the story is very Googleable about their bike share program there, mm-hmm. unlike the New York one where you plug it into a port and that's how you end your ride, but and you return your bike, there you just say you're done, you say done on an app and you just leave it wherever you want. So mm-hmm. they can't accommodate the bikes, they can't accommodate the packages. And have a multifamily with um, you know the shared economy with apartments, you take your, your next door neighbors now turn that unit into a hotel room. Well the people who come, do they expect the concierge in the lobby the way somebody does in a hotel? Mm-hmm. So all of our uses have been disrupted and I don't know operationally, and Byron, you can elaborate if we even have the infrastructure in the operational side of real estate to accommodate. Well,
2: you see landlords making you know, accommodations in their renovation plans mm-hmm. to deal with these new realities. Right, mm-hmm.
0: yeah.
2: and, and, and by the way, you
1: said accommodation, which I think is a very important word. Accommodation is, we're doing you a favor. No, this is the new- It's the new reality. It's the new reality. It's no longer a favor,
2: it's a requirement. But there will be great positives from AI as it relates to real estate also, as you see more modular and prefab housing be done robotically offsite and then shipped to a construction site. That's already uh, allowing for more um, uh, AI answers to Increased costs that we're seeing in construction. Yeah. Uh, you, robo bricklayers are an, A, that's an AI application that allows literally, you know, bricks to go up, and 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 the it elongates the uh, construction day for those bricklayers that are using the robos. Robo mowing, Robo. Um, I was in a hotel in Montreal recently and had robo room service. I
1: was, I, was, mm-hmm. I, was getting, I got yeah, nervous, man. for a second I got really nervous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: there's, there's robo everything. They vacuum your carpet, mm-hmm. do everything, right? Yeah. All right, we're gonna take a short break. We're gonna get back, we're gonna finalize with two or three maybe final trends. And then right after that, we'll talk about some top cities to watch. I'm Michael Bull. This is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. Promote your business to the U.S. commercial real estate industry. Click advertise at the show website, creshow.com. Welcome back to America's Commercial Real Estate Show. I am Michael Ball. This segment is brought to you by The News Funnel. Check them out for news that you customize for yourself. Well, today we're talking about emerging trends in real estate, the ULI PwC report that's very respected. People want to see it every year. That's what we're hitting the highlights on. Please welcome my guest, Mitch Rochelle, Byron Carlock. They're here in Studio One. And we're down to our final segment and to talk about some of the top markets because you know, real estate's local, and if we're going to skate with the pack is going, on, if we're going to develop, invest
2: in markets that uh, show some promise,
0: where's that?
2: Well, let's give you the top five. Yeah. Okay, I'm really proud that my hometown of Dallas, Texas is, is the top this year, uh, followed by Brooklyn, New York, Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina, Orlando, Florida, Nashville, Tennessee, and then quickly followed by another Texas city, Austin, and then we go to Boston then Denver, then Charlotte, then Tampa, St. Petersburg. Those are the top 10 as it relates to the indices of the surveyed respondents as to where they would be, where they view those markets as investment worthy for 2019. And number 11 was? Um, you got it on your list,
0: Atlanta. Right? <laughs> <laughs> All right, number eleven. So, how do these cities it's a sneaky rate? Sneaky eleven. It's a sneaky eleven. It, you know. Got in there. Yeah. So, so how do these cities rate? What, what's the criteria? So, it's there's, a,
1: there's, a, there's a high correlation uh, in terms of. And I'll be brutally honest. This is popularity contest. So mm. people, there's 76 possible cities, and people check them and they're not required to provide any rationalization for as to why. why they chose they this just series. pick them right and yeah. we one of the things we look at you mentioned very top of the show uh, and you said respected several times which we, we really appreciate that um, but we look at every year to make sure no one really put their finger on the scale and drove a specific city with like mm-hmm. a get out the vote campaign uh, mm-hmm. within uh uli and that's never happened but what we do look at is uh, when somebody is new in the market, why? New in the top 10. And then we also look to see what they have in common, which I'll unpack in a second. Just a couple of things that are interesting in the top 10. Uh, Tampa was 19 last year mm-hmm. uh, and it's number 10. Uh, Denver was 23, but Denver's been in and out of the top 10. So that mm-hmm. that's, uh, doesn't really alarm me. Mm-hmm. Um, Orlando, 16 last year, new to the top 10, uh, number four. And Brooklyn, Beastie Boys, No Sleep Till Brooklyn, could play in the background, Uh, Mm -hmm. was 30 last year, and it's number two. Let's just talk about Brooklyn, because Brooklyn's an outlier. (laughs) Brooklyn, when we looked at it, it's all about what I just talked about. It's all about uh, last mile delivery, high concentration of young people, uh, not enough office space for those who actually don't want to commute into Manhattan, would love to live, work and play in the same place. So there's demand for office space and there's increased demand for housing. And and if you just happen to be in Brooklyn, you'll see nothing but cranes uh, in the skyline. Brooklyn looks a lot like Austin, Texas in terms of uh, construction. It's just a different uh, price point, but it's undersupplied for urban industrial, undersupplied for the right kind of uh, office. Tampa is an interesting story. Tampa is really all about the multi-year strategy, which has gone back several mayors in terms of rebuilding the waterfront there. The Riverwalk in Tampa has been a game changer, the new uh, ice skate, uh, the ice hockey stadium. So it's really public-private partnership, driving infrastructure, which we talked about in the last segment. But if you look at all of them, there's things that they have in common, um, with a couple of exceptions. The volatility of employment, um, and the intersection of that with employment growth. So those cities that employment uh, data is not terribly volatile and is growing tend to be the top cities. Uh, the other thing that they have in common is their experienced employment growth, but they're also affordable. Uh, and one of the big factors that is new this year to that calculus is tax reform. Because the low-tax states, uh, the Texases, the Floridas, are really becoming in Tennessee it's Tennessee, mm-hmm. and even Nevada with Las Vegas, those are becoming places that people, when they're making a decision about where they want to live, it's influencing the decision. Uh, I spent a lot of time looking at the housing market and I could tell you with absolute certainty that the limitation on state and local tax deduction is impacting real estate, residential real estate in high tax jurisdictions. So if that's the cost, The benefit is gonna take place with net migration. Uh, Orlando is seeing net migration of roughly 70,000 people annually into Orlando. Uh, There's a tremendous amount of jobs there. There's a tremendous amount of employers. It's growing uh, its population uh, two and a half times the national population growth, and it's growing across all age cohorts. So it's not just young people. It's not older people who are moving to Florida but the fact that it's a tax-efficient place to live and a tax-efficient place to do business is what's become very uh, attractive, so. Mm -hmm. And Mickey Mouse
0: lives there, so. (laughs) So. Not Snoopy,
1: though, just to stick, (laughs) Byron said animation before, we just talked about two animated characters. So, you see low-tax jurisdictions uh, being there, you see a lot of youthful um, cities that are affordable to live in, affordable to do business, and that's the theme that's been happening throughout uh, the last five, six years of emerging trends, and it's continuing. And I'm often asked, what happened to um, Salt Lake City? What happened
0: to Salt Lake City? Yeah,
1: what happened to (laughs) a a former congressman from uh, Utah asked me that question. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, what happens is there's a lot of herd mentality here. Mm -hmm. I joked a couple segments ago about the guys that stopped talking about industrial. Uh, Last year, Fort Lauderdale was in the top 10 and it fell back out again. What happens is uh, a lot of people like it and a lot of people race to it, and then people feel like the trade's gotten crowded, mm-hmm. and then it sort of falls back in, in popularity in the ratings, which speaks to the durability of Dallas, Austin, Nashville, uh, Charlotte uh, in, in the top 10 rankings.
2: And I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw out another uh, trend possibility that we don't know what the full impact will be on city rankings and city investments going forward, but the new Opportunity Zone legislation and the formation of opportunity funds that begin going into blighted areas um, sk- skirted areas of cities where there may be a uh, a whole quadrant of a city that can be redeveloped under opportunity zone legislation and the attractive tax opportunities for opportunity fund investors will change some of these cities yeah that's interesting and we'll put a link to a show we did on opportunity uh,
0: zones and this incredible uh, tax advantages and and potential future profits of these properties are held for 10 years or a new business that's it's pretty incredible so um- we will have a link to to this report, so you can look at all top twenty cities that, that Virgin Trends is picking as as the t- kind of top markets to look at for investment next year. But before you guys have to run off back to uh, you what New York, and then you're going to where, Byron? Memphis. Today. Memphis. All right, nice. So um, some barbecue, right? Mm-hmm. So what about the favored sector? When you when you interview folks, uh, what are the favored maybe one or two sectors?
2: Uh, industrial still hits the top. Yeah, okay. yeah, and it's really it's 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 indicative. OF THE MAJOR CHANGES WE SEE IN SUPPLY CHAIN AND LOGISTICS. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, WE'RE SEEING MULTI-STORY INDUSTRIAL COME BACK. WE HAVEN'T SEEN MULTI-STORY INDUSTRIAL uh, in decades, we said that to an investor the other day, and he almost hung up on us. <laughs> <laughs> like,
0: wait, wait, don't!
1: It's big in Japan. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. It's big in Japan. So what's yeah. number two?
1: Um, I was going to throw a, like a curveball in there in lieu of a yeah. number two, which yeah. is repositioning retail. Indeed. Um, there's a Red- lot of a lot of your clients, a lot of the viewers, and who I've uh, been sort of fortunate enough to interact with over the years. Um, we're was looking for that you know, less crowded trade, mm-hmm. repositioning retail. We are under supplying retail right now. And I've joked and I remember being on your air with Ryan Severino mm-hmm. years ago when he said that retail was overbuilt and under demolished. But the fact of the matter, it's not as much demolition as it is repositioning. Repurposing. And okay. I think uh, the love that retail needs is in the form of capital. And we talked earlier about the alternative uses of distribution, mm-hmm. solving last mile problems, um, medical uses in the form of urgent care, other uh, services for young populations, whether they be you know the gym time kind of places. Uh, you know, I used to joke about all of the empty big box retailers that became uh, laser tag places, but don't don't overlook the importance of that in communities that are growing,
2: especially when most retail um, developments are still parked five to one in a ratio. And there's a lot of excess land, a lot of um, changes that will come as a result of the way we move around with driverless cars and shared transportation mm-hmm. that can use up some of that land for higher and better use development.
0: Yeah, and don't, and, and of course some retail is still doing really well in mm-hmm. uh, a lot of markets. 90% 90, 90
2: yeah. of purchases are still done yeah.
0: Yeah. in store. Yeah,
1: And, and, and the subsector that it remains really, really hot is the what used to be grocery anchored is now drugstore anchored because that drugstore has morphed into really the the go-to place and the margins inside that box are very, very strong. So there's an impetus for many of them to continue to expand. You're also seeing consolidation in that industry as the healthcare industry becomes more retail. Um, And uh, I think look for more consolidation in healthcare that's gonna drive more land use and retail as opposed
0: to last. Final comment from you guys, um, when you we when look at the report this year, you guys were heavily involved in it, um, and now you're reporting on it or, or being asked questions about it and speaking on it. What do you take away from it? What should we take away as a, as a
2: concept? Well, I think the, to me the biggest is space use is evolving, mm-hmm. and the real estate community has the opportunity to respond to those those changes and make money doing it. And that's why I like your development, redevelopment recommendation. Yeah. I, I
1: would say... I'll I'll end where I started, which is if you look at 40 years of real estate, what has it taught us? Uh, It taught us that cycles come and go, but real estate survives those cycles. And if anything, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And commercial real estate investment has gotten stronger and stronger and stronger. It's democratized. It's global. Uh, There's something in it for everybody. And I think the recovery that we're in is going to go quite a while. Um, So uh, Good. There was a 25-inning uh, baseball game once upon a time. Yeah. <laughs> I think using nine as the benchmark is probably wrong. Yeah. And by the way, since I talk global, let's talk about cricket as a sport, which I don't understand, but they had a nine-day cricket match. So yeah. you know what? Sometimes if you, Cycles
2: can be elongated.
1: Cycles, you know, I couldn't imagine a nine-day cricket match. I couldn't imagine like a one hour cricket match i'm sure <laughs> i to get hate mail but yeah the fact of the matter is you know sometimes you use the right the wrong metric you're looking at it the wrong way
0: so gentlemen great information thank you for joining us in studio one today oh, to What
1: are you Good. building studio two by the way
0: Mike? it's coming it's coming that's <laughs> it's coming all right and thank you for joining us there around the country or around the world appreciate your comments appreciate your sharing and connecting with us and giving us your thoughts until next week be sure that you always lead learn and laugh And join us for America's Commercial Real Estate Show. America's Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty, asset and occupancy solutions. Bomi.org, property and facility management education. Real crowd, crowdfunding with professionals. The News Funnel, real estate news personalized. CommercialAgentSuccess.com. Video training from Michael Ball. To access these great companies or for more videos, podcasts, and articles, visit CREshow.com.